Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. All right, I'm so excited that my buddy Patty Lynn is going to be speaking to us again. So let's pray for her and then see what God has to teach us. Father God, we're so, so grateful for the discussion we have had this morning. It's really been encouraging. And God, you are you are such an amazing Father, and we just praise your name. We look forward, Father, to what you have taught to Patty Lynn and what you will teach us through her. We pray, God, that you would help us to empty out anything that's um, just hindering our mind to be able to, to listen and to receive from you, Father. Would you help Patty Lynn to, um, to speak what you have put on her heart uh, with confidence? And God, would you just help us to encourage her as her sisters in Christ? We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Amy. Good morning, ladies. So I don't know if any of you guys have ever heard of uh, Leanne Womack. Any country music fans here? Yeah? Okay, so uh, she has this song where she's giving the advice to her daughter, and it's that uh, when you get the chance to sit it out or dance, I hope you dance. That's right. I hope you dance. Life is full of choices, and in it, there's this risk of faith. (laughs) And um, are we going to believe God, or are we going to trust in ourselves? There's this acronym for faith, and that's where you take each letter of faith, and it's F is for fearful, A is for adventure, I, N, trusting him, this fearful adventure in trusting him, because sometimes it does feel like it's a little bit of a free fall. And uh, we can choose to respond by clinging to our false sense of control, holding on to our own efforts that we've got this and I'm going to succeed. And if it's going to be, it's up to me. We can retreat. We can just hide and say, I'm out of here. Or we can do the next right thing. We can trust God, and we can see our lives, yes, fearful, but fantastic adventure in trusting Him. So this morning, I hope you dance. And uh, you're probably thinking, oh, Patty Lynn's got her metaphors mixed up. This is about the race, and you're right, it it is. (laughs) And uh, this uh, whole passage is just uh, full of metaphors. But uh, first of all, life is a race, and uh, and we're right. We've got this race, and I've... um, in the first uh, 17 verses, I'm going to talk about the race, and then I'm going to talk about the unshakable kingdom that we are a part of. But remember that Hebrews is written to believers that are so beaten down with difficulties and troubles that they're ready to give up. Uh, Hebrews is this intense pastoral counseling of how to cope with the brutal realities of life. It was needed then, and I think it's needed more than ever now. Because uh, I don't think there's ever been a culture with a lower pain threshold than ours. Uh, Cherie mentioned it last week how we, uh, we don't like to wait here, that we really, really don't want to suffer. 
we uh, don't want to have to endure any kind of suffering. And I can tell you for myself, but I think it's a whole culture that never uh, screams so loud or so fast when it comes to enduring suffering. So we're going to see today that believers are to focus on Jesus to endure suffering and then to receive the glory. So here we are. Um, I mentioned already that I've broken it up into two uh, passages because I've got to get through this in 30 minutes. So we're going to see how and why to run the race. And we're going to see that in the race that it's the stress that actually causes growth. And then we're going to look at that unshakable kingdom where we get two views of glory, both Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. So open your Bibles. We are in Hebrews chapter 10, or go to that back of your book that it's all written out for you, and you've got it all underlined and everything. And it starts off with this great encouragement that... Um, Therefore, since you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and I love this because I'm looking at my marathon runners out there, and you know exactly who you are. You know what it's like to be in a marathon, and you're with this huge crowd of other people that are running alongside you. But last week, we saw all the heroes of the faith. And, of course, this is an argument. It's a sermon that he's encouraging them, and he's like, you're not alone. You are in great company. This was the, the Chicago Marathon, 10, 10, 10, and we actually cheated. Elizabeth did the whole thing. Bob left at one point because his Achilles was hurting so bad, so we got another Robert Allen Weber to go in. But it was that, that, you, that you're not alone in, uh, in this race, and it is such a great picture. I've got to hear <clears throat> wonderful, inspirational story, marathon stories, as I'm sure all of you probably got to hear some of those. But I'm going to go, and I'm going to go ahead and focus in on the Greek word for, uh, for race. And the Greek word is agon. So what does agon sound like? That's right. Life is an agony. It is an agonizing struggle, and um, it is a marathon. It is not a sprint. It is something you build up to. And they were, uh, author was probably thinking of a pentathlon, because in the ancient world, uh, they would have been very familiar uh, with the pentathlon that it consisted of javelin, discus, jumping, running, and a wrestling match. And if you'll see in uh, verse 4, where it talks about, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you're probably thinking, oh, they're talking about Jesus here. And, you know, he, he shed his blood for us. He did die. And we haven't been asked to die for our faith. And, and that is true. But I also think in, it's in relation to this pentathlon, they would wear these leather gloves and they would wrestle. That was the last thing. And it was to protect them, but it was also to disfigure their opponents and that they would actually draw blood. And so this uh, metaphor here is that in athletic training, the principle is, is that suffering is necessary. And so, um, 
stress causes growth. And I know my husband picked out that first picture. It's a bone. And you see what happens when bones don't get stressed. We all know it because we hear it as we get older. We get osteoporosis, don't we? They just crumple. They don't do well. You have to do those weight bearing exercises in order for your bones to get strong. And it's the same principle in our spiritual lives in faith, that muscles, your faith muscle has to be opposed. It has to have that stress in order to grow. So uh, uh, I'm thinking here that uh, it's necessary for your bones, but it's also, as a coach, oh, that's it. It's also necessary for your muscles. Okay, I have to be really careful here because some of you guys see me at the gym. (laughs) Okay, you're going... When Patty Lynn goes to the gym, if she goes to the gym, okay, if she goes to the gym and does does what she's actually supposed to be doing, you have to stress yourself to the point that you actually feel weaker before you get stronger, okay? Y'all, I'm thinking bicep curls here, and they're always saying, gotta up the weight, (laughs) because unless you're upping the weight, and until you are actually to the point of exhaustion, you don't get stronger, and that's why you need a good coach, like that drill sergeant up there, because he's going to push you, and if it's a good coach, they're going to push you to go further than what you would normally go on your own, but not break you. And that's what it means to have that coach that knows exactly what it is that, that, that's not going to break you, but it's going to push you to go further than you would do on your own. And so uh, I, I'm going to quote John Newton here, uh, and that's that everything is necessary that he sends, but nothing is necessary that he withholds. So if you've got these stresses in your life and you're going, this is no good. You have to go, he is allowing it. Now, I'm not saying to use this when you have a friend that's uh, really hurting. This probably isn't the quote to use right then and there, but it's something that you need to, to know. Um, just as, uh, as true as it is that we need stress, we do know that all suffering ultimately is a result of sin. And so, uh, we don't want to, uh, to say that, that, you know, God, the source of suffering or evil, he, he wept at Lazarus' tomb, he, bellow, he bellowed, he, he was angry at death. Uh, sin and evil is hard, but we have to know here that we have to have exercise in order to grow our body, and we have to have exercise in order to grow our faith. And so, again, um, I, I'm not a great one at this. My kids love to say, Mom suffers in silence because I never suffer in silence. I'm, I'm really good at saying, this is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And it's true. It is. But until you go through that one hard thing, you're not able to get to the other hard thing. I know that you were probably, or at least I was looking at chapter 11 saying, I could never be one of those Hall of Faith people. You know, how did they do that? And I remember as my husbands and kids were were training for the marathon, you don't start off running 26 miles. You just have to run a mile. 
and then three, and then the next week you run six, and you train up to that. So you don't, you don't have to be a hall of faither right now. You have to be obedient today. You only have to do the next right thing. And so, um, anyway, I, I think the important thing he's trying to do is tell us, okay, expectations are everything. I know, again, for me, half the agony is not the hardship itself, but it's the shock, the confusion, the self-pity that comes from not expecting it, okay? And by trade, I'm a critical care nurse, and uh, I worked in the surgical ICU. So we would get patients that were really, really sick after surgery. And I learned very quickly that I had better prepare their loved ones before they saw their patients, uh, their family members, because they, a lot of times, I was having to take care of two people that then passed out, you know, and the patient on the vent. And so it was like, okay, you're going to see your family member and they're going to be cold. They're going to be pale. They're going to be really, really swollen. They're going to have tubes coming out, breathing tubes, chest tubes. And so that when the family member would come in, they'd go, oh, yeah. Yeah, Patty Lynn was right. This is this is really bad. They look dead or something, you know, or or oh, oh, it's not nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. She, you know, so you you need to be prepared. This here's my second country western song that I recommend to you, and that's that. Um, my mama told me that there were going to be days like this. Yeah, if you know that it's coming, it helps because expectations are everything. Otherwise, you're going to grow weary and lose heart. And so this author is, is trying to prepare his readers. This is, this is that, that pastoral counseling that we've been talking about. George McDonald said that everything difficult points to something more than our theory of life yet embraces. So um, if when suffering comes, we just melt down and lose it, uh, we have this inadequate theory of life, <laughs> okay? So going, huh, I don't, I'm not seeing, I don't have the right theory of life here. So what is your theory of life? What are you living for? If it is to maximize your happiness and your comfort right now, you are going to be destroyed when suffering and trouble come. You need to enlarge your theory of life. You need to recognize that troubles will come your way. Life is an agonizing struggle. But, you know, you don't want in the middle of your tragedies, it's not really necessarily comforting to see God as that drill sergeant up there. We want to also realize that he is our father. And, uh, and I love that uh, the author here changes our metaphors. Uh, and, um, he is now looking at uh, verses 5 through 11. My son, do not make light the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Enduring hardship as discipline, God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children 
and not true sons. Moreover, if uh, we have all have human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it, how much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So I love the the picture of the discipline of a father. And not all fathers, earthly fathers, are perfect fathers, but our heavenly father is. And the Greek word for discipline here is paideia. And can y'all guess what word comes from paideia? Pediatrics, pediatrician. It's uh, a pediatrician sometimes will have to inflict pain, but it's always for the good of the child uh, so that the child can flourish. It's not just punishment for punishment's sake. It's not retribution, tit for tat. It's non-destructive. It's punishment for the purpose of improved behavior. Uh, because this is, again, for the son that he loves and the, son, the child that he delights in. And if we weren't disciplined, it would be like being illegitimate children. We don't go disciplining other people's kids, do we? Uh, <laughs> we shouldn't. <laughs> anyway, but uh, the human fathers, we will respect them. And again, they're not perfect, but we respect them eventually. It's usually 20 years. Somebody said 10 years over there. I said, give it 10. <laughs> give it 20. Give it a little bit more. But they're going to respect you for it. And um, so here we have the parenting of our heavenly father. It's out of love that he disciplines you. So can you see the suffering and the hardships that he allows in your life? Is that... I love the way one author put it, and he talked about, you know, the sin and the suffering that, again, that is a result of sin in the world outside of us, and he said it's the uh, brokenness outside of us, but then there's this brokenness inside each of us, and it's the internal uh, cowardice, the selfishness, the brokenness outside, maybe the disease, the racism, the evil that everybody sees, and he's able to connect both of them. And I, I love it. In the Bible, we see example and example after of, of this. But um, I think of, of Joseph, and y'all probably, everybody loves this story of, of Joseph, who's such a great Christ-like figure. But he didn't really start off that way, okay? And Jacob certainly didn't. Jacob had his idol of Rachel. And then when Rachel died, he made an idol out of Joseph, and he gave him this beautiful robe. And Joseph was... Uh, he was gifted, but he was also becoming a little um, self-centered, maybe a little full of himself, thinking, okay, God's given me all these, these gifts. And what God was able to do is take that brokenness, the jealousy and the hatred of his brothers when they stripped him of his robe and threw him in a pit and sold him off into Egypt. And that was horrible and wrong. And then Potiphar's wife, that she was so lustful after him and then lied and then Potiphar put him in prison again. And all of those things are wrong and horrid. But he was able, God is able to take those things and use them with the brokenness inside of Joseph. 
to make him into a great, great man. He was burning away the dross of, of being self-absorbed, of being proud. And he, and he does that for each one of us. Uh, we go from being blind and cowards and selfish to having self-knowledge and courage and generosity. And it's painful. That discipline is painful, but it bears the fruit of righteousness. And as I mentioned, suffering is that painful reality for people living with the consequences of the fall. Sin is the reason for all suffering, but not all suffering is the result of a specific sin. Last month, uh, Dave uh, Tate uh, taught that the presence of suffering in someone's life does not mean that they've sinned more than someone who has sinned less. And that's important to, uh, to remember that. But we also need to know that, um, that when we understand that, th- that this suffering is part of the being in a fallen world, you're also able to move beyond that, uh, just the reasons for why me, God, why are you doing this to me, to saying, uh, what, what is God trying to teach me? How can I become more like him in this? And when we don't understand that suffering uh, is a part of the fallen world, that pain uh, can lead to bitterness and resentment. And that's those next verses in Hebrews 12 through 17. That root of bitterness that the author of Hebrew has been warning his readers of over and over again in every, every one of our lessons, it kind of get, gets stuck in there. And he say, it, it's saying that if I can't understand why bad things are happening, then God cannot be both sovereign and good. If I don't know what the plan is, then there can be no plan. And um, it can lead us to that rebellion and that immorality, but it can also lead us to despair and despair is always an act of arrogance. Uh, I think I have that in the next, is that the next little slide? Where, okay, oh, that face, okay. Uh, but despair is an act of arrogance because it means that only if we're omniscient are we allowed to despair. You know why? Because only omniscient people know why everything is happening, know everything. And so if we despair, it's because we know everything, Okay. And we know that this can't possibly be used for any good, okay? So um, it's saying that we know better than God. But it is also that rebellious <laughs> response that, that I had also mentioned too. So there's wrong responses to discipline. And the author uses these universal uh, gestures that we recognize in every single culture, you know, just like we know if you smile and you're laughing, you're, you're just happy, or if you're just, you know, crying or sad or frowning, you know, it's all those little faces that they use in the hospital now to tell us how, what's your pain level. You don't need a translator to see a look of resignation or a gesture of defiance. And so the uh, author of Hebrews is uh, speaking about the human life with all these metaphorical language. And um, the gestures here are the drooping of hands, the weak knees, the lame feet. These words help us understand, first of all, that the Christian life is hard. It is exhausting 
as it often is, but how we're supposed to continue running that great race with endurance and perseverance is that we can look at it as this is to build my faith. This is building that ramp up to the hall of faith. It is to heal us. It's to heal all that brokenness inside of us. And so, um, anyway, the, uh, the inappropriate response to discipline is, is to stop trusting, to give up, to lose faith, to rebel as Esau. And we had such a great discussion of Esau that I cannot go all into. But basically, Esau, he didn't value the birthright to begin with, okay? He, Jacob had valued it, and that is why he was willing to give it up. And somebody who loved, can't stand to be hungry, <laughs> but, but he was already willing to give that up, although later he was so mad that he didn't get the, and cried for it. But it was a cry of rebellion, and it showed Esau's heart. So... Um, Again, we don't want to go into the bitterness, the sexual immorality, the unholiness of, of selling our birthright and later regretting it. So the lessons I think we see here are practical humility is number one. We need to receive hardships and suffering as paideia uh, coming from a loving heavenly father. Why? Why do we need to do that? Well, because we're going to lose heart. If we can't see any reason for it, doesn't mean that there can't be any reason for the suffering. We got not to melt down. We're not to say we're out of here. And then we're supposed to have um, another lesson is practical evaluation. This is the, from a parent. What, what do I need to throw off? You know, it, it, it's so that I can stop sinning, to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. And so when you go to a gym, you usually wear gym clothes. And I don't like gym clothes because they show like all my imperfections. <laughs> okay. But we need that because it's good. It, it kind of motivates you that, okay, I'm here to work out. So that's what it does. We, you have to look and say, okay, what is this hardship bringing? Why is it bringing out the worst in me? Why is it bringing out all these imperfections? Maybe what idols is it pointing out in my life? Maybe, you know, maybe it's, I am so upset over this because I cannot stand for my child to fail. Why? Why can't you stand that? Are you making an idol out of that? It's bringing out these hard hard things that I, you, we don't want to be necessarily look at, but we need to look inside ourselves. We need to ask, Lord, what, do I need? what is it that I need to work on? But then the big thing is, is we need to know what's the gas behind all this, okay? And that's to fix our eyes on Jesus. You are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Son of God. Consider him who endured such opposition, from sinful men, so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. So uh, Jesus's suffering gives Christianity a leg up over every other philosophy, any other religion, where suffering is just meaningless. So they avoid it altogether. 
In Christianity, there is a suffering God. Jesus suffered for us. And in his suffering, he sought you and he sought me. So will you, in your suffering, seek him today? The truth is, is that in suffering, believers are to look to Jesus and they're to trust the heart of their heavenly father. We are to look to him and trust the heart of our father. Next, we're going to look at this unshakable life. And we get the two views of glory. We get uh, from Mount Sion and Mount, uh, not Sinai and Zion. But first, I want to talk about um, the meta the mere meta narrative <laughs> that that uh, Amy really pushes forth that all of Genesis to Revelation we see creation fall and redemption and then glory or restoration and in the first uh, view of Mount Sinai we uh, we see God's glory up on the mountain when they went go to get the 10 commandments in Exodus 20 through we see it through the lens of the fall where we are separated from God and God's glory is absolutely terrifying they go and um and they, uh, well, let's, let me read it here because it, it's so good. Um, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Oh, yeah. Wait a minute. I need to start at 18. You have not come, excuse me. Uh, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the trumpet blast, or to... Uh, such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling. Uh, I am trembling with fear. So we're going to have here this, uh, this comparison of the two mountains, which is really a uh, two ways of looking at life. And I think this is the climax of the whole book of Hebrews. Because next week, sorry, Amy, you just get to do all the practical applications of chapter 13. But here we have, you have not come and you have come. You The shakable life the, and the unshakable life. And the come, in he, uh, again, in Greek, doesn't just mean this moving of ge- geography, but it is this, uh, has this deep religious meaning. It's referring to our fundamental approach to God and to life. Everyone's got one. How do you face life? How do you face the troubles that you are bearing today? How do you face yourself in the mirror every morning? How will you face God when he tells you to give an account for your life? How would you respond? Well, in most cases, people will say, well, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than most. That's our default mode, or I've tried my best. I was just watching Chopped, and, you know, that's what they always say when they get literally, they go, I know I did my very very best. And the truth is, is that that's not a bunch of baloney. We don't do our very best. And that, just go to, in, in life. 
Uh, I'm not saying that the top champions didn't go to their to their best, but but actually, it is, I am because when you look at Romans one and two, it, it, he's basically put, putting everyone on level ground. It's the you know the the the. And the Hebrews or the Israelites were saying, oh, you're right, those pagans are the worst. And then, you know, Paul just turns right around and says, and so are you. No matter what standard you have made for yourself, you have broken it. If it's just the golden rule, okay, I'll just speak for myself because I can't speak for each of you. I have never tried to understand someone as much as I want them to understand me. No, I just, I've never done it. I have never been as fastidious in meeting the needs of other people as I am in meeting my own. Every single one of us is a moral failure. And at Mount Sion, uh, the shamness is revealed because they come before God and God has come down and as they draw near, they were absolutely shattered. This was not warm. It was not cozy experience being in the presence of God. It was fire, darkness, gloom, storm, smoke, trumpet blast. It was fatal to go near why was it so shattering to go to the nearness of God? Why was even Moses trembling? The people were saying, no, no, we don't want to hear from him. It's because we all think we're okay until we're in the presence of the holy God. And we see this over and over again in the Bible. When they come before God, Job goes, I just myself. Peter goes, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And uh, Isaiah, oh, I am totally, totally undone. In God's presence, we face the inescapable truth that shakes us to our roots, to our very souls. That I that we are sinful, that we are small, that we are cowardly, that we are capable of such evil, and we are undone. We see how fallen we really are. And so whatever it is that you build your life on, the world will eventually, it's going to shake you down as well. If your identity is that you are smart and you went to this great school, guess what? There's a bunch of people that are smarter than you and they'll let you know it. Let's say that uh, you just, you're really good at making money, you've worked really hard. Well, guess what? That next economic downturn is going to be shattering. If my identity is that I have found the right person, Mr. Right, guess what? They'll let you down. Maybe I miss his right. <laughs> oh, then, I'll let, then that's a really hard one. Maybe it's that I do go to the gym. Well, guess what? Eventually, you're going to get flabby and die. <laughs> Although exercise is good. We've already discussed that. Please do your exercise. But you don't want to approach life like that. The author is telling uh, these Hebrew Christians, I want better for you. Oh, readers, please, you have come to the mountain in verses 22 to 24 that are just, they're wonderful, to the Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. You have come to the thousand upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. 
you have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I mean, it's all the opposite of what we had in those verses 18 uh, to 21. And is it possible to have this whole new way of life, this whole new way of approaching uh, life? Uh, and it's through the, uh, first we saw the, uh, through the lens of the fall, but where we're separated from God and God's glory is terrifying. But now we have through the lens of redemption, where it is a wonderful, good thing to come close to God. And it is an inspiring thing. It is all of these wonderful things there at Mount Zion. We have all of the rights and privileges of the firstborn. And that means that firstborn didn't have to do anything. They just got it. Isn't that amazing in the ancient world? And so you, we just get it, get it all. And another way of looking at the history of the world is the tale of two cities. And uh, we were just studying this in our church history class, you know, from Genesis to Revelation. We always have this earthly city, which is our society, the present human order, the city of man, which is basically, it's a dog-eat-dog world. We have to maximize our own personal happiness. And we have this future city, that Mount Zion, that Jerusalem. It's the city of the living God. And what's neat, in this city, we are not out for ourselves, but we're out to serve and care for others. And it is possible to have this unshakable life right now. How is that possible? It's because it says, present tense, you have come. We have an unshakable future, an unshakable joy, and an unshakable identity. God has already laid that foundation down. God's city is not where your life to benefit me, but my life to benefit you as the operating principle. And that's what's coming, and it is a guarantee. That's why when Augustine saw Rome being sacked by the barbarians, thinking this is over, he said, no, wait a minute. This, I've got a kingdom, an unshakable kingdom. They got the city of God that is being built for me cannot be sacked. It cannot be burned. So how is it possible to have it right here? It's through Jesus, through the gospel. We see all of those uh, dark gloom earthquakes happening at the death of, of Jesus Christ when he died. And that is when the Lord of all the judge of all the earth, right there in the middle of verse 23, was shaken for us. The judge of the world was judged. And um, that is what the gospel gives us. And so that is our unshakable identity, is that our names are written in heaven. It's our new identity. And I, what is that next thing I was going to talk about? I don't have time. Oh, 
How do we get it? Well, how do we become a part of this kingdom now? Through the gospel. And it's, we get it present now. This is a little something that somebody gave me. Uh, wow, I guess it was like 25 years ago at one of our small groups. It's through the community that Amy's going to talk about next week in chapter 13. We are part of that kingdom now. And this says, how kind you were to open the gates of heaven and give me that little glimpse of paradise. We get to have it now. And, I, and I, I'm always encouraged uh, to do that. Okay, here's the wild revelry. I'm not going to go into the Greek word, but that's what that joyful assembly is all about. It is a great rave party dancing that you just can't even imagine with thousands upon thousands of angels. So the gospel brings us to the city of God, and we get into this universal dance. And that's what uh, C.S. Lewis loves to talk about this, that the whole universe knows about this. It was all created to glorify God. And they're in this incredible rave party. And we here in this miserable little speck of earth are grasping for our control, thinking that we, we know something. And he's like, no, you get to be a part of this uh, universal dance that is just so incredible that it's been going on from eternity uh, past in the Godhead where um, there is just the presence of God has this unspeakable joy. And that's this uh, party and this dance that we get to be a part of. So um, my principle is, is that life shakes you to your soul. But with God, oh, what is that? Oh, that's the dance. Y'all don't have to watch that. Okay. Let's see. Uh, nope. Let's see. I don't think we have any. Nope. That's okay. Here's the principle. Life will shake you to your soul. But with God, your soul is not shaken. You are part of this unshakable kingdom. So let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that, that you... You know better than we do. You are a loving Heavenly Father. You know that this race is hard, but it's not. You train us not to break us, but to strengthen us so that we will become like gold, Father. You will burn away the dross when we uh, read about that consuming fire in those last verses. It is to make us more and more like the, your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I thank you for this uh, study, and I, I pray that those women who need the encouragement that you gave um, through the book of Hebrews to saints that were suffering then, that they, they would see that encouragement today and that they would look and fix their eyes on you. Pray this in your name and for your glory. So if you get the chance to dance, I hope you dance.